The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, we're going to pick up the issue on the overseas distant Chinese fishing fleet. This is a story we covered back in the late spring, early summer, uh, where we talked with Mark Gottfried about, he's from Seafood Source, about the presence of the Chinese fleet off the coast of West Africa. Satellite data indicates just this month that a large Chinese fishing fleet remains in international waters near Ecuador's Galapagos archipelago. At the, just again, at the beginning of this month, and there was a huge controversy over this in August and the late summer when the fleet kind of showed up on the doorstep of Ecuador. And China, though, said it would temporarily ban fishing near the Galapagos Islands, but yet that fleet still remains. And it brought up the issue, that coverage, which got a lot of attention around the world of what the fleet is doing in Africa and other parts of the world. And there's been a lot of events. Let me bring you up to date very quickly on what's been going on, particularly in West Africa. In Ghana, China's industrial fishing fleet really is now starting to emerge as a contentious domestic political issue in the upcoming presidential campaign. At a campaign event recently in western Ghana's coastal region, opposition vice president candidate Nana Jane Opuku Ayemang and former fisheries minister Hani Sheri Aite said that the National Democratic Congress, which is the opposition party seeking to uh, displace the current administration, would crack down on illegal Chinese fishing in Ghanaian waters, and specifically they're focusing on psycho-fishing. This is something that we've talked about quite a bit on the show, which is those transshipments at sea, which are highly legal and very, very impactful on the subsistence coastal fishing communities. Separately, the Lu Rong Yu 956, which is a Chinese vessel operated by the Rongcheng Ocean Fisheries Company, has reportedly been relicensed in Ghana. Now, this is incredible, Kobus. They were due to pay, I think, a fine of a million dollars for using nets that the meshing was too small on. And what that did is it allowed them to pick up fish that they were not authorized to, to do. They never paid the fine, and yet the government still granted them another license. Okay, down in Liberia, there was a very interesting showdown this summer. Six Chinese super trawlers. Now, these were huge vessels capable of taking 12,000 metric tons of fish every year. Put together, think about this, all six of those would catch more than the sustainable yearly catch of species targeted by the artisanal fishing communities, those canoe fishermen in Liberia. So just those six vessels alone would have had a devastating impact on the local fishing industry. Now, they docked in Monrovia and over the summer applied for permitting. And the Environmental Justice Foundation, which is an NGO based in London, they published a report called Liberian Fishing Communities Threatened by Chinese Super Trawlers. And this is very interesting because, boy, oh boy, did that piss off Emma Metia Glasgow, who's the director general of the Liberian National Fisheries and Aquaculture Authority. Her a agency issued a press release calling the EJF report, and I'm quoting here, Kobus, 
fabricated, misleading, baseless, biased, and a complete fallacy. The agency went on to say that the report, and again, here's another quote from their press release, was an instrument of political insecurity designed to incite the Fisher folks against the Fisheries Administration in particular, and the Liberian populace in general, as well as the state. Wow. And so uh, Liberia then went on to not grant permits to those six super trawlers. So after all of that hullabaloo with the EJF, it actually turned out, Cobus, that they just didn't want Western NGOs and European NGOs telling them what to do because really they knew what they were going to do all along. Now, they've, they left the door open for those six trawlers to reapply because they said they denied them on technical grounds. So if they address those technical issues, they can actually reapply. But Cobus, it brings us to this point here where there's a lot of activity, activity from the Chinese fleet in West Africa. They are starting to see some, some rejections of permits, which we haven't seen in the volumes that, we've, that we're experiencing now. But at the same time, it does seem, based on what we hear and read, that the fleet is operating off of coastal waters in international waters beyond the jurisdiction of a lot of these West African governments. So a lot moving in this space right now. Yes, it's a very complicated situation. Um, with it comes um, the, the the kind of the general you know way that we see frequently Western press um, re- reporting on on these kind of um, these kind of controversies around chi- Chinese consumption. Um, they, they tend to particularly kind of focus on on the the fact of Chinese consumption rather than conte- contextualizing it in wider issues. Of course, European fishing fleets have been accused of of you know kind of ruining coastal economies of West Africa for a long time, um, and you know, I think I think recently, um, you know, more, more recently, the, there's been some regulation that's starting to to kind of cut back on that. But the the crisis is frequently was frequently kind of created by a lot of different actors, and now you know, kind of the the Chinese frequently come in for for a, a, some I think in, in some cases well deserved kind of criticism and scrutiny, but frequently the criticism also doesn't actually show the entire picture. I'm glad you brought up the media coverage because so much of the discussion that takes place around the distant Chinese fishing fleet tends to be done by either uh, international media, non-Chinese international media, African NGOs, and various voices that are not from China. So we really wanted to get a perspective of somebody who's actually been on the Chinese trawlers and can give us an insight into some of the thinking that goes on in China. Lulu Ninghui is a Brussels-based journalist for the Chinese language news site based in Hong Kong called The Initium. Again, not a Chinese mainland news site, a Hong Kong-based news site uh, where she covers stories on how China interacts with the rest of the world. She leads the international desk for The Initium. And over the past uh, year or so, she's done two fascinating stories on Chinese fishing trawlers where she's actually had the opportunity to board the vessels, one in Madagascar, one in South America, and we're thrilled to have Lulu uh, join us for the first time from Brussels. A very good morning to you, Lulu. Morning to you too. Thanks for having me. It's really fantastic. Again, I'll, I'll emphasize this, that although you are Chinese, and you, but you do not speak on behalf of anybody but yourself as a journalist, but we do want to be able to get some of the insights that you gleaned from your time aboard these vessels as to what was going on. You wrote a story, loosely translated, The Blue Land Outside of the Law, The Seamen Who Can't Go Back, and you profiled in one of your stories a 23-year-old by the name of Xiao Wang. Talk to us a little bit about, again, Xiao Wang and also what it's like to be on those vessels and try and really shed some light for us on what we're missing in the broader coverage. 
Well, see, I think the thing is when we mention often in, in the media, when you talk about the Chinese fleet or Chinese boats or Chinese fishing companies, they tend to be like a entity, right? Like an object almost, or, or China as a country. I think very rarely you sort of see the people behind these entities, like um, crew members or captains boarded in this in this fleet. Like what they're thinking, what 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 is their story? How do they think of their um, decisions? Where to go? How much to fish? How many hours to work? Like these type of details, I feel is missing. Probably because it's difficult to get. Also, like it's rather difficult to approach to these uh, vessels and have a sort of like normal and friendly conversation. They're pr probably quite guarded if it's from a very outside face. Um, but then I feel like if we could really tell a bit more of their story, maybe maybe in a way we can complicate the, scenario, uh, the situation a bit to understand why are these people deciding to work in a distant water fish so far away from China. The, 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 the crew members I talked to, they just... Uh, traveled for two months all the way from mainland China to that particular spot in the world like and the, the fishing ground they do they actually uh, you know for the coming year will be very active it's very small but they travel so far to come here and the only thing they do is every day to fish they are following the orders from the companies and they they sort of like their life um, is on these boats so, like these kind of details they may not change the uh, the the situations you guys just descri describe this overall trend or the damages it causes, but um, yeah, um, as a journalist, I feel like these uh, these uh, experiences will be quite interesting to know for for the, for for a wide audience. Um, so when we boarded that uh, a trawler in uh, like that, that's late late November in outside outside that in that uh, fishing ground, I think. <laughs> the thing is, like, I was with a Greenpeace ship, right? That was uh, the one for their um, researching ships to, to sort of see what's going on in the fishing ground. And we talked with the captain um, via, ra via radio for quite a while. I think at the beginning, they were very guarded as well. Like, who are you? Why are you talking to me? But after a while, being like, sort of like, more of a hearing a voice from China and hearing inquiries that's probably not as accusation, rather as curiosity. After a while, uh, after, when we asked if we could board their, uh, his ship, he actually said, yes, why not? Come over. So then we were able to actually uh, spend some time with him and his crew members on the, on the ship. When you spoke to the crew, um, who are they? Uh, you know, kind of in the first place, are, are they all from China? Um, and then how, how are they uh, recruited? Well, not all of them are from China. Uh, the I would say the key crew members are from China. And actually, all the ships I talked to in that particular reporting trip are all from uh, a particular small fishing village in Shandong province in China called Shida. They are all from that place, except that young guy which I, who I profiled at the beginning of the article. Uh, he's not from uh, that uh, village. And the, the other, there are deckheads, deckhands that they hired from, um, I think, Indonesia in this, in this particular boat. But I think a lot of uh, jurors in that region, they would pick up a handful, like probably 10 or 9 uh, Indonesian crew members before they arrived to this, uh, to this fishing ground. So it's a mix. Do you get a sense that when you were on the vessel that they were working with any guidance of regulations 
or were they just kind of going wherever they wanted to go? Because one of the perceptions that we have of the fleet is that they really are disregarding a lot of the, the regulations in terms of the size of the fish, the quantity of the fish, the location where they're fishing. Did you get a sense that regulations were a priority or not? Well, um, I think location matters a lot in that particular fishing ground because they were not allowed to be close to, was that three or five, five miles of the EZ border because Argentina and Coast Guard are very um, restrict um, for a few years already. So there were conflicts between Chinese fish, fish, uh, fishing vessels and the Argentina Coast Guard. So the um, crew members were are very aware of this regulation. And this regulation changed from China's side. And now and then they changed like, was it five? Would it be three? So they know that very well and they uh, wouldn't cross that line. But it's interesting because the Argentinian Navy literally opened fire on these Chinese trawlers, and that seems to have been effective in making them concerned. I'm wondering, based on what you've seen in your other research, if in other parts of the world where they haven't had confrontations with navies, do you get a sense that the culture of the Chinese fishing fleet is one where they actually pay attention to rules and regulations? I think it really depends. You sort of like need to, I think, like naturally, for them to apply is for them to be very aware what these regulations are and what are the consequences, right? Like even from the same story, I talked to a, a fishing agent, um, oh, sorry, a shipping shipping agent, was that the way? A shipping agent for these Chinese vessels in um, Montevideo. He's also a Chinese uh, um, man from China and he also runs his own fishing fleet. Um, and he, he his fishing fleet doesn't target squid and then, uh, was it tuna? I forgot. Sorry, but he he's he was trying to say he knows very well the quota of uh, of the catches of his fleet, and he would have to follow all the regulations put upon his uh, vessels. So it comes down to whether it's possible to translate not not just as language, but also as uh, the conditions and the consequences of all the um, all the all the rules that uh, all the captains should follow. What are the the crew members' lives like? Like like how late do they get up? You know, kind of what what does you know, kind of how how which kind of working hours do they have? Uh, how do they how do they relax? Well, this particular timing, I was on board. It was sort of like November. That was right right before the squid season starts. So I think they were really relaxed. That's also why they would um, accept the um, request to board on their vessel. I don't think in a busy season would they would ever do that. So they were really um, feeling like there was not much to do, to be honest. I think for trawlers, um, for a few years already in that ground, they had uh, they hadn't get really good catches. So the captains were uh, and the crews, to be honest, were really bored. Boring was like being bored or thinking these two years on the sea will be too much of a, you know, don't know what to do type of feeling was quite uh, obvious. And um, yeah, there were um, there were TV series brought on board. So I didn't think they were doing much at that particular time I was on board. They didn't even try to um, fish at that point. They were ju- They just arrived from China. I guess I'm surprised that they would even allow you to board simply because, A, you were coming from a Greenpeace ship, and I would imagine that the fleet's relationship with Greenpeace is probably not that great, unless maybe they didn't know who Greenpeace was. And secondly, that you're a reporter. And it just doesn't seem like they have anything to gain from it, from having a reporter on board their ship. Why do you think they let you board? Well, 
from their perspective, they are not decision makers from a com- big company sitting in China, right? Like to be honest, this is actually a very big uh, company with really many uh, fishing fleets. I think some of the names you mentioned earlier in Africa were also coming from this particular company, but they didn't have the chance or the need to sort of make that decision with their company. I think that was one of the reasons they were like, ah, it's not a big deal. Um, and then we were not like requesting for like somewhat difficult questions. This was a quite a quite an honest researching um, purpose, like asking how their lives is, asking where they're from. It's a, it's a conversation that I think the purpose of the conversation really is to show a bit of what what's the fishing situation for them, who they are, instead of like um, trying to use this opportunity to expose something that would, they would be feeling very guarded from. I think that was what, one of the reasons they agreed us to be on board. Picking up from that, I, I you know, I assume you, you you didn't have a chance to like ask them about very controversial stuff. But did you did you get a a sense of of do do like how do they see the kind of controversy around Chinese fishing ships around the world? You know, kind of do they do they feel that they are being kind of unfairly portrayed, or, or do is there some kind of awareness that that some of their work might be problematic? Well, this uh, I think uh, they are aware. For, for instance, what they are aware of is. Um, the like the changes of catches, but like I don't think, like from this particular again, this is just a few people I talked to, and their knowledge and their understanding of fishing sector may not be very pre- representative. For instance, he would the captain feels like the reason for less catch may be because the water temperature ha- temperature has changed because he saw the iceberg. You know, like he felt like this is what he experienced in the past few years. You may, uh, remember, they spend this captain, for instance, says he spent all his thirty, forty years of working in a in a boat, completely cut off from the rest of the world. They have no actual communication. They wouldn't read about the controversies about their fleet. They have no idea what they've been portrayed really per se. And when they're back to China, they're with their family, not necessarily going to be, you know, um, at least some of them wouldn't be like reading these type of uh, um, questions about the activities. It's very similar yet to the workers in, in Africa, for example, or in other parts of the world who go to Ethiopia, but they're on working at a work camp. They're working six, seven days a week. Uh, they don't necessarily interact with the broader community, and then they go home, and they're, they're very, very confined. So they don't necessarily see the bigger picture. In terms of the perception that you had about the fleet going into reporting this story, and then when you came out after you after you kind of wrote the story, put it out onto the Initium's website, got some feedback. What was different? What was a perception that changed in your mind about about the fleet when you uh, when you published the story? I think one thing I really um, want it's a, it's a sort of new again. Yeah, like you said earlier, I've, do, I've been doing the the the, the China, what I call China outside China stories. So like on different fields, there are different things. But this, in this particular case on, fish, on fishing vessels, what, I, what reminded me the most was that they, they, like to understand who they are, where they're from, and what is their goal to be on a, on a vessel so far away from China, like the economic, political, and social background of these individuals. Uh, so they, they, they are born in a fishing, a fishing village. The only means of income in that village is 
fishing. And then with less and less fishing opportunities near China and more competitions near China, they see a chance to be on a distant water fish, uh, a fishing, fishing boat, right? Like to sort of understand, like, as a, as a labor force, as a market decision, where, are, where they are from, sort of like not separate them from the uh, context in domestic China. So that, that's a takeaway I want to sort of like, also like really make a note for myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. I, th- I think it's a it's a very kind of you know kind of fresh way of, of looking at it. I think. Um, and 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 picking up from that, um, roughly how well are they paid? Well, they are paid much much better uh, than the Indonesian and other uh, laborers I saw on the boat. I think they are paid uh, the lowest, like uh, the young guy who is like has no experience. I think he got he could get like a hundred thousand kwai. Uh, eighty eighty thousand kwai, whereas uh, um, um, per year, whereas the the uh, the the Indonesian crew, I think they got like they they say <laughs> the Chinese crew say that they would be paid like five hundred dollars a month. So that's also sort of how they distribute the cost. Hiring some Chinese uh, crew members that uh, um, are more expensive, and clearly there are less and less Chinese. Who want to work in on these vessels? So there, so the the the, the labor market of uh, um, crew members supplied from Indonesia, um, it's it's a, it's a real another issue and quite a important issue to look into. So you said a hundred thousand kwai, right? A hundred thousand kwai, yeah, I think so. Yeah, so that's about fifteen thousand U.S. dollars, depending on the exchange rate. So yeah, twelve to fifteen thousand dollars. Um, let's step back a little bit from your experience on the vessels and then kind of change hats here now as somebody who covers China outside of China. What's your sense of the Chinese awareness of how controversial this topic is? Because this is one of those issues that is really emotional for a lot of people because it really feels like China and the fleet and the fleet being subsidized with fuel and supported by the government indirectly and through implicit types of, of, uh, of support, not necessarily overtly supported. Um, is really taking advantage of weak governance in countries that don't have navies like Argentina that will then fire a shot across the bow, but then and also taking advantage of weak governors to get permits and to overfish. And it really is an emotive issue. What's your sense of the awareness in China uh, among stakeholders as to whether or not this is a controversial issue? I think a lot of a lot of them are very aware. That's also why it is so difficult, right? As a, as a media and journalist, to actually have a conversation with many of them, because that sort of like this this uh, impression, this uh, um, picture of what China is doing in different fields is so strong that a, lo- a lot of them feels they are not gonna be able to actually participate in a conversation. Some of them who would uh, talk to me, for instance, would say that it, this is a scheme uh, by the Western countries to uh, block the chance of from uh, for China to benefit from globalization. Only here before, some of, some of them would say. I remember one of the guys I talked to said that we... This place belonged to the West before we have to squeeze in. That's what he said. Not as a big investor of any kind. I think he was just a um, um, grocery store owner in Congo. You know what I mean? That kind of uh, sentiment is strong. The while while people develop a picture that is against China as a superpower changing the world and uh, destroying places, the, the these feelings felt by this uh, particular group of Chinese as well. 
So they felt that the, you know, what I mean, it's 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 not a one side uh, emotion. It's gonna have reactions from the Chinese community as well. How how concerned do you think? the the general um you know your general readership is um about issues like overfishing like is there is there worries that that the world is simply going to run out of fish yeah we try to do quite some uh, coverage on fishing sector actually we've done stories from western africa like i've done a few stories on fishing sectors to be honest i don't think it's like um particular pricing issues for my readership there are a lot of other issues that feels more like urgent, right? Like the, this is a readership from Hong Kong, from mainland China and from Taiwan. So um, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure fishing is a, like a burning issue to a lot of my audience, but uh, well, f- as a editorial team, we made decision to try to cover it um, as much as possible. But, but Kobus, to be fair, I'm not sure anybody who's not directly impacted by this really cares that much. You go to the supermarket, you buy some frozen fish sticks, you don't actually look at where it comes from. In fact, I think my understanding, and I'd be interested, Lulu, if you know anything about this, that the Chinese have also commented back saying not all the fish that they're pulling up from the distant fleet is for the Chinese domestic market. Quite a bit of it is actually processed in China and then sold around the world as either fish paste, fish for dog food, for uh, fish sticks, various kinds of processed food that's then sold in the United States and, and elsewhere. So there's a, a couple people have told me over the years that there's a little bit of hypocrisy that the criticism is coming from the U.S. and Europe, for example, about the Chinese fishing fleet when it's their consumers who are benefiting from the low-cost processed fish products that come from the distant fishing fleet. Ironically, I don't know if you know anything about that, but that is one of the points that Chinese stakeholders have brought up to me over the years. It makes sense to see fishing sector as a as a consum- like consumer power sort of uh, uh, problem, right? I mean, that's also for China to say it's your con- it's U.S. and European consumers buying the products also not fair. I mean, China is probably one of the biggest consum- consumptor of uh, <laughs> seafood. Oh, certainly, yeah, but yeah, they're but, not the only consumer. Oh, absolutely, but they're just they're yeah, just saying exactly, they're not, not the only, only consumer. One. That's the point. I think when we when we are trying to maybe offer a solution and think of the future of distant water fishing, it's it's really about like where you where your target is. Like, who are you want? Who are you going? to convince to make a different decision, different type of governance from which kind of institution or government does it from that's going to actually make a difference. Like, distant water fishing is not big uh, in China's fishing sector, if you look at the proportion. Like, I think think it was starting uh, five, six years ago, it was only like 2%. And now it's probably raised a bit to like 6% uh, in last year. That was the, the latest figure I knew. But that's only because that's the problem with China, though, because everything in China is enormous. And so relative to China's whole, it's very small. But relative to the world, the estimates on the size of the fleet are up to 15,000, 16,000 vessels. That could be compared to the overall fleet, a very small percentage. But in a place like West Africa or South America, it's a huge presence. Yeah, of course, of course. No, no, that's I totally agree. My point is like, you know, like to have the to have the share size of China and the Chinese, uh, the fishing sector in China, the kind of uh, amount of uh, uh, stakeholders within this sector, any kind of uh, uh, opportunities and challenges and regulations will need to be um, sort of like Cons- uh, interpreted understood in this in this kind of scale, like there's nothing gonna work right away. 
You know what I mean? Like, uh, for instance, even with distant water fishing, uh, I, well, f- more recently, I think the Chinese government has tried to f- do a few things to limit the size or to regulate the pra- practices, even to um, try to control the, uh, ma- uh, the crew members working on the on the vessels from foreign countries, even develop a blacklist. But these are very small steps facing to a very big problems. So it's 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 it's. It's the size and the complicated uh, stakeholders in it that makes this issue so difficult to address. There's no easy way. Do you get a feeling in, in speaking with people from the industry and then also people you were actually met on the ship that they are that there's some kind of planning for for the future for future changes? Because I think, you know, not only through overfishing, but also I think mostly through climate change. Um, we're looking at uh, you know, at at the collapse of fish stocks, you know, a quite realistic kind of view of of of, a, of collapse of fish stocks over the next decade or two. I mean, you know, like obviously, um, proportion, you know, uh, projections differ. But um, are they? Do they seem to be planning for that? Like, you know, kind of like how how their entire economy is going to shift. I think people's working on the on on the vessels. They probably don't have that kind of um, um, vision. Really, their goal is. Their, their, their problems is that they can't make enough money if they would find a job in mainland China. They will not be able to save enough money because if you're on the sea, your salary remain unspent, right? There's no cost on the sea. So they decide a quite harsh life in order to make enough money because that's what's requested for them from their family, from their kids, from their wives. That's so important. To It's not about the survival uh, in a large economy in 20, 30 years. It's about their individual survival of the coming two, three, five years. So then distant water fishing, illegal, legal, problematic, okay, profitable, not profitable, is sort of like... You know, in their, I think in their eyes, it's not such an issue. It's very different. But Cobus, that really is the role of government to make sure that they do that. And I really want to go back to the FOCAC action plan. That's the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Action Plan. So at the end of every FOCAC, every three years, they issue what's called an action plan, which is similar to a communique that other summits would have. But section 3.5.6 states, and I'm going to quote it here. China supports Africa in the capacity building of maritime law enforcement and environment protection to ensure the security of maritime resources and promote maritime development and cooperation and the promotion of sustainable approaches that are environmentally, socially, and economically effective through the blue economy. That is the Chinese wording in the action plan. So that's not, they can't put this on Western media, Western countries. They can't do that. This is their words. And I think there's a very compelling case to say that the distant fishing fleet, complete with the subsidies, is not living up to the spirit and the letter of the 2018 FOCAC action plan. I'd like to get your reaction to that, Kobus, and then Lulu, hear what you have to say if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely, I completely <laughs> agree. But it's, it's, I think it's, it's one of many examples of of African, uh, you know, kind of documents and and policy plans and so on that are very lofty and very idealistic. Um, keep in mind, obviously, that that African stakeholders were also very deeply involved in the in the the drafting of that of that language. So, so is the burden then on the Africans? I'm sorry, is the burden then on the Africans for not calling out the Chinese to enforce that? 
Yeah, I think it is <laughs> um, because you know, kind of because we've seen a that the that the the um, in the cases where they did call out China on, on particular issues, like for example, like an ivory, China responded, and you know, kind of how how are outside stakeholders supposed to react to to African governments that are just pushovers? You know, the way that the you know, kind of where they so there's so clearly there's there's corruption or malfeasance involved or mal you know or bad um, bad management involved in many West. African kind of uh, cases around fishing, you know, kind of if, if it's, you know, if, if you're going to fall over the when someone just nudges you, then you can't complain about lying on the ground, right? Yeah, I really, I agree. It's really about whether you can convince the government in China to do a bit more. And then also the strategy to do that. I, I mean, I get it. No, no one knows. I No one knows the decision making process in China. I mean, <laughs> not many people I know knows about the decision making process in, in Beijing or elsewhere in mainland China. And then their, the, any of their decision has a uh, quite um, impact, and then how do anyone from outside uh, could make a um, make a, any kind of push? And while doing that, not try not to maybe I think a strategy is try not to um, sort of like put everything that with China together and say it's a one thing like. When when you accuse, when we are accusing, um, for instance, Chinese captains to a to to a degree, is that going to help to to convince Chinese government to do something different, or is it a particular captain, a particular fleet, a particular vessel, or is it like this vessel as a whole, or Chinese as a whole? I sometimes read stories about illegal Chinese vessels. It's like it reminded me of the word of illegal immigrants. You know, like just put illegal in front of one large amount of things that you dislike and then is that going to change how they do things and how they interact with you that i have doubt yeah and you know kind of i completely agree with you and and the the idea that 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 china is the only kind of bad actor in this current crisis is ridiculous you know i mean you know i used to live in japan and you know you know obviously japan still whales you know, and, uh, you know, there's, there's every year there's like, you know, the Japanese whaling vessels go out, Sea Shepherd follows them, they they get in fights, there's like negative anti-Sea Shepherd reports on, on Japanese TV. You know, it, it never stops. Like, and it's true for Europe, it's true for many other other actors as well. To, you know, to, to single out China and this is, is ridiculous. Well, it is because in part, I think the scale is much larger for the Chinese distant fishing fleet than it is for any other country. That's at least what we yes, heard. Again, from, it's a scale issue. It's yeah. a scale issue. Even if when it's a scale issue, I think it's also quite interesting probably to look into that scale a little bit because it's very different when a fishing vessel, for, for instance, in fishing sector, if they're fr coming from particular province, was it a, cap a state capital behind them? Was it private capital uh, behind them? Who does what? Like China is big, but it's not one thing. There's no, I, I doubt uh, often that there's any sort of a master plan, you know, from China's side to like take over the sea or uh, lock all the uh, uh, woods out there. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's difficult, um, I think, as an outside to sort of like look into China and see the different layers of interest. And it's often very nested and very difficult to understand the drives behind each one of them. Some of them may be driven out to, uh, from China actually because of a very big crisis they're facing in domestic China. So a lot of things happening outside China and uh, for the world sees as a China problem. But sometimes for me, when I see 
particular projects, I come to understand that it, this is driven, they are driven out of China because of particular problem inside China. So we see we see that over and over again in the characterization of the Chinese in Africa, that it is one singular entity, that there's an overinflation of Chinese power, that people assume it's far more organized and centralized than it actually is. And one of the things that you hear from scholars and other analysts who study this for a living is how chaotic the system really is, that the one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing, whether that's state-owned enterprises competing with local enterprises in a country like Ghana or Nigeria or the DRC. Everybody assumes because they're Chinese, then they are all kind of organized by one. And there's a, a meeting room in Beijing, which kind of sends a memo down for everybody to follow. And as you pointed out in fishing, it is not like that. And it's the same in so many other aspects of the China-Africa relationship and China's engagement elsewhere around the world. So I'm very glad you pointed that out. Let's close our discussion with what is the the big takeaway that you got from this reporting assignment that you did that brought you onto these vessels that you think is the most important thing for people to know about, good or bad, in terms of understanding the Chinese fishing issue from the point of view of what your experience was like on those trawlers? From the point of view of these particular vessels I boarded, um, to be very honest, is I probably said this earlier also, to see their faces, to hear their life stories and to know what is their individual drives and concerns and difficulties and how that has, has such a distance from how we understand Chinese distant water, fle- uh, water, water fleet as a whole. Like, and, to, and the question for me is like, of course, that you have these major problems, um, Post at because of this large fleet, and then you have on this fleet um, countless individuals who have their own struggles and their own dreams and their own boredom. And you know, like how how do we? Is it possible to connect them? Is it possible to make people see both of them? And in between these two uh, scenarios, are there many more? Uh, are there the pro- stories and problems be- behind the Indonesian uh, labors I saw on the? Uh, boat who was not who did not dare to join the conversation and I could only look at them from a little bit di- little bit of a distance. How did they get to this boat? Do they get to go back home? Like what uh, what are the middlemen who handled these labors and who are the transshipment? Who owns the transshipment? Like the uh, like the in- infrastructure of distant water fishing? Is it one country, one company? Uh, when we try to regulate it, should we? Look, sort of like see a much broader landscape and sort of pinpoint when we are pointing out of fingers to individual um, stakeholders and those who are responsible for a particular uh, problem. I think that's my takeaway. But I do know that given like what we also talked, like no one really cares what's going on in this blue part of our planet really um how, how like what i'm asking maybe is way too much is it way too much so that's my questions that bothers me since uh, uh since i got out from that ship it's a good question uh, lulu ninghui is a brussels-based journalist and the lead international desk editor for the chinese language website based out of hong kong the initium she's done some excellent reporting on the Blue Fleet and the Distant Fleet uh, in South America. And she also did a story about a deal in Madagascar as well. We'll put links to both of those uh, on our site as well. They're in Chinese, but if you use Google Translate, you can read them and get a good good sense of what they are. So, uh, Lulu, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And, really sh- and we really appreciate you sharing some of your experiences and your insights on this. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. Kobus, it is so refreshing to hear somebody say that nobody cares. You don't hear that very often because when we talk to scholars or we talk to NGO activists, naturally they care about it because they're involved in it and they've dedicated their time and their, in many cases, their careers to following this particular issue and they're trying to get people to care. When she pointed out, rightfully so, I think, that this is such a diffuse issue. There's so many people involved. There's so many actors. There's so many players. There's no center for it. There's no way to criticize and to charge anybody for doing one thing. It's a little bit like going after global warming. It's hard to kind of pinpoint what we do because it's so diffuse. And I think this is the big problem because who can bring control to this? Now, people will say, well, the Chinese government certainly can. Sure, the Chinese government has an enormous amount of power, but are they willing to do that? And I think to to Lulu's point, it's not a big enough priority in China to crack down on the fishing fleets. And we got that indication also from Mark Godfrey, who we spoke to in our previous podcast on this issue, that really the distant fishing fleet is a subset of the domestic fishing industry, which is enormous. So to Ghana or Liberia or Mozambique, The distant fishing fleet from China is a massive presence and a massive issue. But to the Chinese, it's insignificant. It becomes also, again, the the responsibility of African governments to protect their their own, um, you know, not only their own resources, but their own people. Um, And I think, you know, this this is a classic example of of this kind of breakdown of trust between African governments and African uh, uh, populations um, and communities, particularly the coastal communities in this case, because obviously African governments have limited means and limited power, but they have some, and, uh, and they're not using those in many cases they're not using those means that they have to actually protect their own communities um you know and and this kind of assumption that oh you'll be you'll be sold out by some official in the in the capital is true <laughs> you know in many african cases it's proven um so so you know kind of so in that sense it's easy to blame the chinese but but in 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 many cases you know they're again aided and abetted by african governments and what she said which was so interesting was that the time frame and again i think understanding timing on this Whereas we're looking at the depletion of the fish stocks, that's something that's years away. Even though it's happening now very quickly, it's happening faster than many people realize, but it's still years away. And people, like as you talked about, whether they're government stakeholders in a place like Accra or they are the Chinese themselves, are thinking about how do I get paid today? How does a fisherman send home money to his family because he doesn't have a lot of money? How does the politician get paid today? I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. That is the nature of corruption, unfortunately. But that is one of the consequences, I think, of this difference in timing, whereas we look at, well, we only have 50 years left or 40 years left or 20 years left. Who knows? But it's not tomorrow. And that makes this problem even more difficult to, to deal with. As we pointed out, what, what we know how this story ends. That's for sure. Overfishing is going to lead to poverty, which is going to lead to instability, which is going to lead to migration. The same way that climate change is going to have that same effect as well, and our inability as a people to do anything about it is going to lead to the same outcome and the same consequences. I think if, if there's one thing we can really, you know, kind of say 2020 gave us is is an awareness of how artificial these kind of time spans are. Um, because, you know, like, sure, I mean, like widespread global warming's effects will arrive in, you know, in, in 50 years, but California is burning down now. Um, you know, and and I think it's it's going to be the same for the for for fishing. Like sure, like widespread, comprehensive kind of views of of you know if if you take the entire all of the fish stocks 
um, you know, into account, then sure, there, there might be a few decades left, but in many places, they're gone now. Um, I'd like a, a bunch of the people, you know, of, of, of African migrants who are currently dying in the in the Mediterranean come from West Africa. They come from, they left because those economies are already gone. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's the one thing that I think that 2020 has shown is that we are in the future already. That's correct. And it's happening so much faster than any of us ever thought it would happen. And, and again, you talked about California. There's the Gulf Coast in Texas and Louisiana that's being pounded by hurricane after hurricane. Again, another impact of climate change. But our inability as the United States withdrawing from the, the Paris Climate Accords and our inability to really do something about it is, is revealing. So China, Xi Jinping said at the United Nations in the General Assembly speech that China will be carbon neutral by 2060. And that's a long time from now. So there's a big gap in what you're saying, Cobus, and this idea of climate neutral in the 50s and 60s, which is a long, long ways away. Very quickly, Cobus, you and I oftentimes speak with U.S., European, and other stakeholders from other countries who talk about how to engage the Chinese to, to empower Africans to have a better relationship. And it strikes me as one suggestion that I might have is to be able to encourage the likes of USAID, DFID, any of these aid agencies to work with local fishing stakeholders in preparation for next year's FOCAC to bring out section 3.5.6, which I quoted, on the fisheries issue and to put some enforcement mechanisms, some standards, and a little bit more detail into that clause. Because next year at FOCAC, which I presume the action plan is being negotiated on right now, wouldn't you assume that they do that a year in advance or six months in advance? This is the moment for embassies and aid organizations and NGOs to be working with African partners on Section 3.5.6 to make sure that, to, to bring up the idea that whatever we did in 2018 did not work. Pure and simple, 3.5.6 was a bust. What can be done in the 2021 FOCAC version of 3.5.6 to make sure that there's some teeth in that on both sides? So on the African side, which is that say, we will commit ourselves to fighting corruption and we will work with third parties to help us do that. And then on the Chinese side, we will commit to enforcing laws just like they've done with ivory and some of their wildlife laws to make sure that illegal fishing does not deplete coastal resources. I have to admit, I'm more positive, I'm more optimistic on the Chinese side than on the African side of that equation, I think. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I completely agree with you. It's, it's the one thing we've seen is that criticizing China works, right, for Africa, like, you know, kind of like complaining about about certain uh, inequities or, you know, kind of malpractices in the China-Africa relationship have led to actual reforms in, in the past. Um, and FOCAC is the place to do it, or then the run-up to FOCAC is the place to do it. Um, and yeah, I agree with you that that would be very good um you know i think you know I, th I think what would also then have to happen is is a way of 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 holding african government's kind of feet to the fire on this issue um and that i'm not 100 sure like how that would work it's depressing this this subject depresses me i mean the wildlife <laughs> the fishing it depresses me because at the end of the day we can talk all we want about what should be done but nothing's been done it doesn't seem like anything's going to be done and it's just, it's sad because the oceans are being depleted recklessly without any thought. People are suffering. It's not sustainable. And I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I'm sensing you're depressed as well on this, that you don't believe that there's a lot that can be done here either, especially because there's money and there's a lot of money in the near term to grab. 
both from the fishing side and from the African governance side. So, oh, okay, well. Yeah, although, you know, kind of we, we do we do see it kind of grabbing more attention in Africa. I think I think it is, you know, it, as, it's, as it becomes more controversial around the world, you know, kind of it'll also force governments, you know, kind of into action. So I think like adding, adding voices to the clamor, I think is one way of, of helping. No, no, and, and, and I'm not being fair here. I, I have to admit, I'm not being fair here because at the beginning of the show, I mentioned how Senegal refused permitting. Ghana has refused some permitting. They're still on the fence. Ghana's a weak spot in all of this, and they let that other vessel, the you know, the 956, you know, get repermitted even though they hadn't paid a fine. So let's take Ghana off the table. But Liberia uh, really cracked down on permitting with those six vessels. And so that is encouraging. So it's not all bad. Okay, I'm not going to leave everybody with sadness and depression and, and a bleak. We want to leave with some optimism. Keep an eye on what's happening, certainly in Senegal and in Liberia. But the pressure really needs to be on Ghana to make sure that if there are fines, they are paid. And if they're not paid, those vessels don't go back out to sea. And if they do go out to sea, they're only able to catch what they're allowed to catch. That's hopefully what we can see come out of Ghana. So... Well, we'll leave it there for for this edition of the show. These are topics that we cover every single day. We do deep dives on this in our daily email newsletter. Our community of readers is growing. We would love to have you as a podcast listener, especially one who's made it all the way to the end of the show. That means you are a dedicated listener to join our community of readers. If you like this topic and you like the depth that we're going into, you'll love our newsletter. Sign up at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. It's just $3 for three months. If you're a student or a teacher, it's half price, only $7 a month. That's super cheap, even in these bleak times. Uh, But we put an enormous amount of work into this every day, basically 12 to 13 hours a day, filtering through all of the news, the social media, to condense down, here's a daily digest of what's going on in the China, Africa, and increasingly in the China, Middle East space. So once again, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. If you have any questions whatsoever, drop Kobus and I an email. You can find me at eric, E-R-I-C, at chinaafricaproject.com, or Kobus, C-O-B-U-S, at chinaafricaproject.com. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast. Until then, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Studinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. 